come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. listeners to episode number 89 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i'm your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio and on this episode i have odyssey through the ones number 16 for you as i have featured reviews of the power that is here from 2021 as well as i'm pairing it up with the ghost train from 1941 which i didn't realize until i was kind of watching these that this is an interesting double feature from the united kingdom of are these locations that these movies are taking place in haunted or not? And also in this episode, I have many reviews of The Hunt, A Field in England, Curse of Chucky, The Lords of Salem, and the last one I got to watch was Evil Dead from 2013, you know, the remake there. I really think that's all I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a brief break before I get into those mini reviews. And as always, I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review of this week, I have The Hunt. This is from 2020. Now, this is one that's going to be very brief because I did cover this as a featured review back on episode number 42. So I'm just going to kind of give my updated thoughts after the second viewing here. But just to get you up to speed, this is directed by Craig Zobel. It was written by Nick Cuse and Damon Lindenloff. This stars Betty Gilpin, Hilary Swank, and Ike Barinholtz. This is a action horror thriller film that is a co-production between the united states and japan this is currently sitting on a 6.5 on imdb and a 3.0 on letterboxd with our synopsis here being 12 strangers wake up in a clearing they don't know where they are or how they got there they don't know what they've been chosen for a very specific purpose and that is the hunt so what i really kind of just wanted to get back into here is that this movie got better for me after a second i really like how this story is presented now, I knew coming into this that, you know, Betty Gilpin was going to be our star here as Crystal. And I know Jamie didn't at first, but I, I realized that, you know, watching it again the second time, we really don't get introduced to her until about 30 minutes into the movie. And then our, like, main villain, we really don't get to see her until about an hour into it, respectively. I think it's kind of an interesting way to kick this off that's kind of akin to, like, a Psycho or, like, Scream. 
I think the satirical nature of this film is great. You know, this one is, you know, turning it on its head that, you know, the rich right-wing people would be hunting liberals. But instead we're doing it the, you know, opposite way here where we have these elite liberals that are hunting these different people that are calling deplorables. And what I really like is that this is calling out people for being like social justice warriors, you know, for cancel culture, which I do kind of want to expand on that a little bit. I do think we should have the consequence culture as that is, you know, holding people accountable here. And then we're also looking at like toxic fandom and how things on the internet can just get out of hand very quickly. Because I think it's really funny is that these people are accused of doing something so they do it. So they don't really understand that they're the villains here and they think that they're in the right. And I really think this is trying to show here that the far right and the far left are the problem in this country. And that most everybody else falls into the middle. I love the references to things like Animal Farm here and how Athena thinks she is more intelligent than Crystal. But... In the end, she's actually not, and that Crystal is probably the most intelligent person in this movie. thought the acting across the board was really good. thought the effects were good as well. I, I did have some issues with a little bit of the CGI, but not enough really to affect me. And this is just a great film overall. I don't think it's going to be for everybody because some people just aren't going to enjoy the satirical nature of this, or some people are just going to be butthurt about the subject matter. But I think this is really looking at kind of how society is at the moment, and doing it where they're showing that both sides are the issues here and that you know being more in the middle and kind of being more accepting of people is really the way to go so after the first viewing i was sitting on an eight after the second viewing i am sitting now at a nine out of ten here for the hunt from 2020 and then i also got to watch this week though a field in england this is from 2013 this was directed by ben wheatley who also uncredited helped write it with amy jump this stars julian barrett Peter Fernandino and Richard Glover. This is a drama history horror mystery film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being amid the Civil War in 17th century England, a group of deserters flee from battle through an overgrown field. Captured by an alchemist, the men are forced to help search for a hidden treasure that he believes is buried in the field. So this is another movie that I got turned on to thanks to Duncan over on the podcast Under the Stairs. It was featured on Opera Omnia when him and Mr. Watson, another of my favorite voices in podcasting, covered all of the films that Ben Wheatley has done. I listened to that episode, but there has been quite a bit of time and I didn't remember a whole lot. The number of podcasts I listen to probably doesn't help there either. Regardless, I went on a list of movies for me to see and I'm just now getting around to it thanks to the Summer Challenge series for the 2010s as this appeared on the 2013 list over on T-Puts as well. So I'm going to be honest here, as I had a hard time to decipher what everyone was saying in this movie. The DVD copy I picked up didn't have subtitles, and they talk very fast with heavy accents. I'm sure, though, I still got the gist of the movie. It's just there are some undercurrents here that I'll need to pick up on with multiple viewings now that I know how things play out. I do have one last confession before getting into that. I did start this one night, got 30 minutes in, and had to shut it off. It wasn't due to being bad. It was just I was too tired to keep up with what was going on. Now, where I want to start is that this is an art house movie. It is shot in black and white, and I think that Wheatley does an excellent job here. The movie looks beautiful, despite the story being not overly complex. We do get some great visuals that make some things, you know, very interesting to watch. It almost feels like they're building characters with how things are framed and edited. This even more goes on with the characters as they descend into madness. Now, going along with this, I want to go into the acting. I would say that our star is probably Whitehead here, and he is portrayed by... Reese Shearsmith. He's an interesting character. He's a man of science, even if some of them are fringe, but he's also a man of God. 
There are multiple times where you see him praying. He also was versed a bit in alchemy and divination, which aren't actually sciences anymore. Whitehead can diagnose ailments, which we see with Cutler, who is portrayed by Ryan Pope. He isn't completely right, but I don't believe the science was great in the era to begin with. I thought Shearsmith does great in this role. Fernand Ando is solid as Jacob, along with Glover as friend. Now, Pope works for me as Cutler, and he's also interesting along with Michael Smiley, who is portraying the character of O'Neill. They both have a temper and a presence about them. Other than that, I thought Barrett and then Sarah D, who is the voice of the field, were solid. Now, since I haven't gone into the story yet, really, I should point out that there is more of a character study here. We establish his group and their different roles within it. Whitehead is a coward that needs to find his backbone. O'Neill is a thief that is looking for this treasure. With his character, we he does some despicable things that fit. We also get an interesting look at Whitehead, who is a, both a man of science and religion, as I've said. I believe it is Friend, who is the dim-witted character who believes in God and just goes about his life. Seeing how all these characters are fighting in a war that they don't believe in, we don't necessarily know what their side is, but we all know that they don't want to be fighting from how they're acting and interacting. What was my biggest takeaway from this story is that. The other thing is that they're looking for isn't necessarily important. It is finding themselves. I also feel like there might be something here with hallucinations going on as not everything seems all that real and they are eating mushrooms. It also makes me wonder if all these characters are real or not or is this more of a path of discovery for Whitehead where he has to kill his inner demons or at least face them. And the last thing I want to go into here would be the soundtrack. I thought it was good for what was needed. We are getting this heavy drum music that feels like military style for the era. I did enjoy that. Now there's some other selections that are kind of difficult to describe, but they give a different vibe that I really did enjoy. It is hard for me to describe, but the soundtrack just fits for what this movie needed. So in conclusion here, this is an interesting movie. This is one you really need to you know drop everything and pay attention to. After this first viewing, I can say that the cinematography is beautiful. The soundtrack fits to give a vibe of a military aspect, as well as a surreal feeling that we are seeing. We also don't get a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't necessarily need them. And we're kind of really to seeing these characters as time goes by, and when we do get some effects, it does get brutal with realism. I'm not entirely sure I understood the story after this initial viewing. I believe we are seeing a journey of self-discovery for this cowardly whitehead, but I'm not sure, and I could be missing some things that you know are kind of a little bit deeper than just that. This is an interesting art house movie, and not one that I can recommend to everybody. It is one I'm excited to revisit now to see if I've missed anything with this first time around. So my rating here for A Field in England is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then I also got to watch Curse of Chucky. This is from 2013. This is written and directed by Don Mancini. It stars Fiona Dorif, Danielle Buschetti, and Brad Dorif. This is a adventure, comedy, fantasy, horror, romance thriller that is a co-production between the United States and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, after her mother's mysterious death, Nika begins to suspect that the talking red-haired doll her visiting niece has been playing with may be the key to recent bloodshed and chaos. So this is a movie that I'll be honest, I didn't have the highest hopes for when I took it home as a pre-street from family video. I grew up mostly on the third movie in the series, as it was always on the movie channels, and I also liked the second one quite a bit. Outside of that, Bride of Chucky was interesting in its own way, and Seed is one that I've seen once and didn't care for it. So this one worked for me though after that first viewing, and I think a little bit of it came in with low expectations there. 
So what I find enjoyable about this one is I feel like it's getting back to form for the Child's Play series. What is interesting here is that we have almost like a reboot for a good portion of this. We know that this is a sequel from like research that Nika does and it confirms events that have happened in the past. Now, I should also point out here that Fiona Dorif is Nika. Now, the movie plays with the idea that Nika and Alice know the doll is alive. It takes the former a bit to realize it and then Alice being a kid and no one believes her. So this is taking it back to more of the slasher roots as well. Something I found interesting is how many of the characters are unlikable. The movie also plays with tropes of this as well. Nika is handicapped, but doesn't want to be treated that way. Barb is convinced that her sister cannot do anything to help herself and wants her to move to an assisted living facility. This is also in part that her family is struggling monetarily and she wants to sell the house. She is mean to her husband, so it makes you think that he's interested in the babysitter that lives with them of Jill. I'll say this young woman is attractive, but there's an interesting reveal here that makes a lot more sense as well. So I want to shift this over to the focus on Chucky. Now the last two films we saw him, he has that stitched up face look. This movie has a more of a traditional one, which made me think it was a reboot. I did like a reveal later in the movie to in fact confirm that every movie leading up to this has happened. There's a shift in Chucky as well that might not necessarily be him trying to get out of this body and embracing being inside of the doll means. Having seen the next movie in line, I know something that I don't want to spoil, but we get a bit of that here. Chucky is quite brutal with some of the things that happened in the unrated cut here as well. Now, since I've delved into that character, I'll go next to the acting. Brad Dorf is back as the voice of Chucky. He's a great actor in general, and he owns his character for me. That isn't to say the remake isn't good, but it's hard to top an actor who has taken it on for as long as he has. I like that his real-life daughter of Fiona taking on the role of Nika here. She does a good job, and it's this movie that I found her the most attractive in anything that I've seen her in. Buschetti, Brennan Elliott, Maitland McConnell are all solid. They are all flawed in different ways. Buschetti doesn't really have any redeeming qualities, though, and the other two do show a bit as we go on. I will once again reiterate, McConnell is also quite attractive. We get to see her in her underwear, and I'd say that the acting, though, outside of that, on the whole, is pretty solid. So the last thing I want to go into here would be the effects. It looks to be like they did as much with Chucky as they could practically. There are a few times where there is something off about the face, and I'm assuming it is because they were going to have it, you know, move in a certain way. That took me out of the movie, so I'll be honest there. Aside from that, I think that most of the kills look good. There's a bit of CGI that doesn't necessarily hold up, but not as much as I thought. And there's also some solid cinematography here as well. So in conclusion, this movie surprised me the first time that I saw it, and I think it still is solid. I think them going back to more of the roots where the series was going is a solid move. The voice acting of Dorif as Chucky is on point. Fiona is solid as our lead, and the rest of the cast is solid around her. I'm the middle of the road when it comes to the effects, while the soundtrack fit for what was needed. There are some decisions made in the movie that don't make sense, and it's also a bit of a slow burn, so it is kind of a slog at different times, but I expect that for movies in this subgenre. Some of it can be chalked up to just being a slasher movie, but I just kind of wanted a bit more for the series. For me, this movie is over average, just coming up short to go higher, so my rating for Curse of Chucky is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And then the next movie I have for you is The Lords of Salem. This is from 2012. This is written and directed by Rob Zombie. It stars Sherry Moon Zombie, Meg Foster, and Bruce Davison. This is a horror thriller film that is from a co-production amongst the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada. This is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. 
with our synopsis here being Heidi, a radio DJ, is sent a box containing a record, which is a gift from the Lords. The sounds within the grooves trigger flashbacks of her town's violent past. Is Heidi going mad or are the Lords back to take revenge on Salem, Massachusetts? So this is another movie that I took home as a pre-street while working at Family Video. Now there's a bit of hype about this as, you know, for me, because I liked writer-director Rob Zombie's other films that had come out at that point. After my initial viewing, I was a bit let down, if I'm going to be honest. It has been one that, since I've gotten to listen to podcasts, it's many people seem to be higher on it, so I decided to give it another go, and it was one that I thought I needed to revisit just because I wanted to see, you know, how my tastes have changed to see if where my thoughts on this movie, you know, might have changed as well, you know, along with that. So what I will say is, after this rewatch, I'm definitely glad that I, have you know, gave it that. My first viewing was during a time when I was watching a lot, but I wasn't as seasoned of a you know movie watcher as I am now. There is more here that I can appreciate for sure. Now, where I want to start is the location. It is interesting to set this in Salem, where of course we know about you know the Salem witch trials. I've actually watched an older movie of the Devil's Reign recently that involved you know having you know people from this area and you know being part of these trials. And I even heard, you know, these being brought up on another podcast as well. So it's fitting, you know, during this rewatch. Now, going from this, I find it interesting that we have both Francis, who is portrayed by Davison, and the writer of another book who, in the movie, is A.J. Kennedy, portrayed by Richard Fancy. Now, they're convinced that there were no real witches in Salem. Now, the Reverend Hawthorne does, and he is the one that dealt with this coven, and we also are getting pages from his journal. He's also biased with his religious beliefs. I'm actually glad that they hold this because, you know, personally, I agree with them. Since no one in this movie knows that they're in a movie, it makes it feel more real. Francis only starts to believe as he investigates into things, and there's just certain buzzwords that kind of connect with him. For me, what makes this movie like this work is that the atmosphere of who can and who you cannot trust. Now, going along with this idea here of the atmosphere, I first want to delve into the character of Heidi, who's portrayed by Sherry Moon Zombie. I like her being unreliable as a recovering drug addict. We see in the beginning she has gotten her life back on track, and you know, but then it's when listening to this record that it causes her to spiral. You know, both Hermans that she worked with, with one of them being, you know, having the nickname of Whitey, portrayed by Jeff Daniel Phillips, and the other one being Herman Jackson, portrayed by Ken Forey, they immediately think that she has relapsed. As anyone who has been around someone using, it is believable. I feel bad for her though as she doesn't know what is going on with her and she eventually uses but that is when things have become so bad that she cannot help it. Being clean is an extremely difficult thing for you know recovering addicts so it doesn't help having something supernatural mess with you. And then to circle back now to the atmosphere, my favorite part of this movie is this record from the Lords. There is something that is just unnerving about the music. I also like the editing that when it's playing that we get to see Heidi having flashbacks to fill in the backstory for us. We also get to see what it does to other women who are listening to the radio as well. And I thought the rest of the soundtrack just kind of fit for what was needed. The next thing I will go to the acting. One thing I will give credit to Rob Zombie is that he loves to get older actors who were popular in like the 70s and 80s for his movies. And his movies kind of had the feel of being from that era. Before getting into them, I thought his wife gave her probably best performance I've seen in any of the movies she's been in. We get that baseline of her normal, and then we see her fall apart as supernatural events influence her. That worked for me. Davidson is solid as Francis. I liked Phillips, and I feel bad for him because he really has, you know, Heidi's best wishes at heart. He doesn't necessarily understand what is going on, and he really does care about her. I also like Forey as the sterner one in regards to her. Aside from that, I thought that Judy Geeson, Meg Foster, Patricia Quinn, Dee Wallace, 
Fancy, Michael Berryman, and Sid Haig all are good in their cameos. I thought the cast does well there. And then we really, the last thing I want to go into would be where this movie goes. The buildup is great for me. We see Heidi falling apart as supernatural events happen that culminate in the Lords playing a live show. This movie goes music video with some of the surreal elements before and during this though. I don't completely hate it, but I also don't think it completely works for me either. It just feels weird for weird's sake. So in conclusion here, this movie is better than I gave credit for after the first viewing. I've come around to it, and it actually might be one of my favorites with House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and Rob Zombie's Halloween films. Yes, I'm a fan. We have an interesting setting, and I think the backstory to incorporate the Salem Witch Trials works. The acting is good, including the best performance, in my opinion, from Sherry Moon. The soundtrack helps to build that atmosphere along with some weird imagery. Not all of this works for me, though, in, you know, kind of some of the surreal elements. But for me, this is an above-average movie. It is just lacking a bit for me to go higher. So my rating for The Lords of Salem is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And the last movie I have for you for this week is going to be Evil Dead. Now, this is the remake from 2013. This was directed by Fetty Alvarez, who also helped write the screenplay with Rodo Sayaguis. And then this is also based on the motion picture from Sam Raimi. This stars Jane Levy, Shiloh Fernandez, and Jessica Lucas. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being five friends head to a remote cabin where the discovery of the Book of the Dead leads them to unwittingly summon up demons living in the nearby woods. So this is a remake, of course, of the low-budget classic. It does something that I think remakes should do, where it takes story elements and plot points but makes it its own. This one I actually caught in the theater with my sister since then I've seen it a few times, including this last time here with Jamie. So as I was saying here, I'm not opposed to remakes when they do something that's a bit different and can't stand alone, which I think this one does. I like the reason they're going to this cabin is because Mia, who's portrayed by Levy, is a recovering addict as well. Her friends having her out there is to get over withdrawals as she tries to get clean. This place isn't as easily to leave and allows her to recover, but we see that as things kind of go on, that she wants to go back, but they've done this before, so they're trying to prevent that. Now, helping her out are her brother of David, who is portrayed by Fernandez, and then their friends of Eric, who is portrayed by Lou Taylor Pucci, and Olivia, who is Jessica Lucas, and also with them is David's girlfriend of Natalie, who is portrayed by Elizabeth Blackmore. I do like that this movie also takes aspects from the original trilogy, like we have things like a hand becoming infected, locking one of them in the basement, and of course, you know, the chainsaw being there. But there are a couple parts of the story that I just don't like, and one of them involves the, you know, the infamous car battery scene. I do think the editing for this movie is good, though. The film doesn't take too long to get into it, and it builds tension from the beginning. I like the opening showing us what happened to another family that overcame it before, you know, getting us in the main story that we are following. I also think that the editing, for the most part, was good, and it does somewhat keep in line with the other films in the series. But this is more of a popcorn movie, and, you know, Jamie even pointed out with me that she's normally bothered by possession films, where this one didn't really have that effect on her just because of how some of the elements work. Now, for the acting, I thought it was okay. I really like Levy as an actress and thought that she was good in her role. I definitely believe her as this junkie that's trying to recover, and I know she's quite attractive, so they do some really good work to temper her there for this role. But I'm not a fan of Fernandez. He comes off in this movie as bland for me. I want more. I'm just not a fan of his performance, and I think it's just lacking. I thought Pucci was fine as his role as this like jerk high school English teacher. He's upset with David, and I thought that helps to build tension. And everything that happens here really is kind of all his fault. 
Now, for what he does, though, he does get enough punishment that is fitting. And I thought Lucas was good as well. Now, she's a nurse, but there's just something about me that bothers her. And it seems she's a little bit too uptight and combative. And Blackmore really doesn't impress me either. She kind of just fades into the background for the majority of this film. I just don't like her yelling at the friends of David, as she probably has just met all of them. And I don't buy that she would act the way she does. It's just interesting to me that a lot of the same things that I've said here, Jamie did, without even me relaying this... And it's just kind of funny that with her not really being part of the horror community, being kind of in line with what they think. And then something else I have to commend this film for is the effects. The original two films had, you know, blood and some gore, but this one tops it. Not in a necessarily good way sometimes, though. This is really where it just sets itself apart is that they focus more on body horror, and I thought that all looked good. I do believe there is some CGI, and that's what doesn't hold up. This one definitely made me cringe with how real some of the practical effects look. And this one is one that, you know, there's something that happens in the end that I just don't buy. It does look pretty amazing for what they did. Now, there is a lack of blood at certain times, and that kind of bothers me as well. And I do know some of the blood coming out CGI-wise, that's, you know, part of what I had my issues with. I also found the soundtrack to be pretty good. The theme that is used is somewhat of a jump scare, and I found it to be interesting. During the climax, it also sounds like they were using, like, a tornado siren or, like, an alarm of sorts. I like the vibe that it gives for that scene. I definitely think the score was fine, and it helps with necessary tension for some scenes. So now with that said, I don't like this film better than any of the originals, but I do find this one still to be good. I like that writer-director Fetty Alvarez took something that was great and made some interesting changes. He brought enough of the story and things that, you know, happen as well. I like the concept of the junkie trying to sober up in the cabin in the woods when the evil gets unleashed. Focusing on body horror was something that I also liked, and the effects, you know, back up where they were going for, for the most part. The editing builds tension, and the film needs, you know, all of that to the climax. Thought the ending was good enough, the acting was okay. I really like Levy, but the rest were just kind of decent. The sound design of the film was fine. So with that said, if you like the series, I think this film fits pretty well in, you know, for being different. It's pretty gory, and so if that's not what you're into, I would avoid this. If that's not an issue, I think this film is just fun. I do think it is the worst of the four, but my rating here for Evil Dead 2013 is a 7.5 out of 10. And that's all I have for mini reviews for you, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Where are you from? Around here. Back to serve your community. Thank you for choosing me. I require discipline. Stick to your rank, never question an order. Yes, matron. I won't keep you if you don't fit. We have to move nearly all the patients out because of the cut tonight. You will stay on. The dark shift. Does the dark bother you? A place people die in should never be allowed to get that dark. I love working nights. You can get up to all sorts. Bit of dark, won't hurt you. What is that smell? It's burning. Are you scared of something? <gasps> Who did that? Something chased me to the basement. When I looked, there was no one there. Are you just making this up? No, I'm not making it up. Dad! A nurse must give of herself entirely. Sacrifice. How much are you willing to give? Who is she? 
Gaily, what does she want? for my first featured review on this episode is going to be The Power. This is written and directed by Corina Faith. This is from here in 2021. It stars Mark Smith, Marley Chesum, and Rose Williams, while also featuring Devin Henry, Mary Beth Hayes, Maria Major, Paul Anthony Barber, Robert Goodman, Naula McGowan, Angelica Sierra, Sarah Ori, Shakira Rahman, Charlie McCarrick, John McKay, Joe Handow, Gamemsola Kimola, Abe Valentino Charlery, and Francis Hariness. Now, this is really just given us in the order that they appear. I would really say that the stars here are Rose Williams, Charlie Carrick, and Shakira Ronman. But this is a horror movie that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a young nurse is forced to work the night shift in a crumbling hospital as striking miners switch off the power across Britain, but inside the walls lurk a terrifying presence that threatens to consume her and everyone around her. And then just to give a little bit more backstory here is that this takes place in 1974, and this was actually a real thing that happened was that with the striking miners, they were unable to, you know, keep maintaining power. So they would have rolling blackouts that would last like a few days. And it sounds like they even went to like three-day work week and stuff. I didn't realize this was a thing until this movie, and it caused me to do a little bit of research. But this is one that I heard about thanks to podcasts. It popped up on Shudder, and I heard a few voices I respect talking pretty highly of it. I did know a bit from the synopsis coming in, but I wasn't, you know, sure necessarily what we were going to get. And I tried to avoid spoilers as much as I could. So before I get into the movie myself, I'm going to do just a little bit of featured notes about some of the key players here. Faith is relatively new. She has one other credit as a director, and that was in 2013 called The Beast. This is the only movie that she's done in genre and the only one that I've seen. And then much of the same, this is the only one that she has written so far. Then our star of Williams has eight acting credits. This is the only horror movie, though, and the only one that I've seen. And then her co-star of Carrick has 12 acting credits. He has one other one in horror that was called Trench 11 from 2017. I've never heard about it, but the poster makes it look pretty interesting, and this is the only one that I've seen from him as well. And the last one is Ronman. This is, much like her counterparts, the only horror movie she's done, and this is her first movie in general as well. So for this movie, we start off with getting some images from our main character's past. Now, we are giving them out of context and will you know, kind of be filled in later, but our main character is Val, who is portrayed by Williams, as she wakes from a nightmare. We see that she has issues with the dark as she turns on all the lights in her small flat. She dresses for work, and then we see that she lives in a rougher part of town. Now, kind of something I've already said here is this takes place in 1974, and the movie does really well with relaying background information that is based in historical fact as a radio broadcast, so we're kind of getting that information in that way. Now, Val has an interview with the matron of this hospital. She's portrayed by Henry. Now, she is quite tough. 
She delves a bit into Val's past when we learn, you know, that she is from the area, she is an orphan, and she has a bit of a history. The young woman is given her assignment and rules to work there. Now, Val really wants to work with children, and what Matron says to her, you know, kind of breaks her spirit there, but, you know, she's still willing to do everything. And again, she wants to work with children, and, you know, she does get that opportunity. She also creates problems when she takes a liking to a Dr. Franklin, who is portrayed by Carrick. With him goading her on, she disagrees with the matron in front of everybody, and this causes her to be punished by being forced to stay for the night shift. The blackout is hitting that night, so all the patients that can be moved are, and then, you know, those that are too sick that are going to stay here, and there's going to be a skeleton crew that is going to watch over them. Now, she has issues finding the floor that she's assigned to, as she didn't get there before the lights went out. On her way, she does meet two other nurses, one of them being Comfort, who is portrayed by Akumelo, and then Terry, who is portrayed by McGowan. They've been assigned to take care of babies for mothers that are too sick to at the moment. Now, Val is sent on her way to the intensive care unit. It is there that she's working with a woman that she knows by the name of Babs, who is portrayed by Emma Catherine Rigby. Now, they have a history and don't seem to get along all that well. Now, Val's fear of the dark makes her jumpy. She believes that there's something in the darkness that is following her. Babs doesn't help to ease her fears, and neither does the night watchman of Neville, who is portrayed by Theo Barklum Biggs. She believes that there is a ghost haunting this hospital, and she's out to approve it. The question becomes, is there an entity really here, like she believes, or is this a more logical explanation to everything that is happening? And I will actually delve a little bit more into that as I you know, kind of break this movie down. Now, where I want to start here is that I wanted to go vague with my recap, just to kind of get you up to speed with fleshing out that synopsis just a bit more. Where I want to start is I didn't realize that this was a real thing. As I said, from my brief research, it looks like, you know, England at the time was using coal for electricity. Due to a worker strike, they were turning off the power at night and rotating the areas. This is an interesting basis for the concept here. And I mean, this is something that I first learned about for like the Summer of Sam where they were doing rolling blackouts in New York City. But the basis here is that we have this inner city hospital that's already kind of rough and it's going to be like bathed in darkness. It is underfunded and most of the patients are poor. They aren't given the best care, and this is something that is still happening today, so I like the social commentary there. And this leads me to some more type of, you know, commentary like this. The first concept I want to explore is that of classism. We see that at first with Val. She is from the area, and the matron is hard on her. Comfort, Terry, and Babs, amongst the other nurses, also treat her less because of this. Now, she's also an orphan, you know, being from a local orphanage where the people from there are considered to be rough, and she never left the area. It is sad to not treat her like a person or at least give her a chance to prove herself before you kind of are being rude. It doesn't stop here, though. It is coming from the top first. Matron states to Val that she is not to talk to the doctors, especially, you know, not to contradict them. Since this goes for all the nurses, they are all treated poorly by the doctors, and like most bullies, you take it out on someone that you feel superior to, which is Val. Now, this kind of goes to the old, you know, adage is that, you know, crap rolls downhill. The patients are also given the most basic care due to the lower funding. Those treating you know, them feel superior there as well, and that would be you know, the ones given the care. Going along with this, I want to talk about some of the victims and then being attacked. Something happened to Val in the past. I'm not going to spoil what that is, but it is haunting her still. There is a child that could be haunting this hospital that is targeting her. When Val approaches Comfort and Terry about being attacked, they question her. This is a social commentary on victims not being believed. And there's even a little bit of uh, sexual abuse here being factored in as well. Val changes what she says after she is questioned. It made me feel bad for her. 
her class along with the patients here aren't being believed due to them being a lower class and that makes them perfect victims. I think that is all I need to delve into there with the social commentary at this time. So I want to flesh this out a bit more what we got going on in this movie. This is one of those where something supernatural could be happening or there could be a logical explanation. Now I want to start here with the latter because I think this is where you kind of have a little bit more that you can kind of sink your teeth into. While Val is cleaning, she notices there's some thick dust on the vents. Now I wasn't sure if this was supposed to be dust or like mold or just like burnt material that probably shouldn't be inhaled. If it's mold, we have a big problem here. She could be hallucinating. This could also be making patients sicker. Now this is an idea that is introduced when Val meets with Franklin and I like this callback here to that and it's kind of explaining why some of these people kind of repeatedly come in here is their living conditions. Now the other side of this is easier to lay out. We could take everything at face value. What I will say is that when a Val is experiencing things, there's no one else around. It has a bit of a possession vibe, which could be explained as her, you know, snapping with the mold in her. Either explanation could work, but, you know, to disprove Supernatural is that we are seeing things from Val's point of view, so she could be just an unreliable narrator. To me, I think there isn't anything necessarily Supernatural going on, but I love how it is presented where you can decide either way, and my reason is just that we'd never get a firm kind of showing anything like that so that's why i think that there's more of a logical explanation or if there is anything supernatural it is just pushing val onward so then to move away from the story completely i'll go to the acting i thought williams did an excellent job as our lead she is unstable from when we meet her i think she holds it together until pressure mounts the matron isn't nice to her all the nurses treat her with little or no respect and it is only franklin now she wants to succeed but there are things that are against her until she snaps I will say, though, is that this movie, Val is our star, and the rest are kind of in support of her. I will give credit to Henry, McGowan, Carrick, Ikamula, Rodman, Rigby, Barklin Biggs, and Clara Reed, and the rest of the cast just really kind of round this out for what was needed. So the next, I would have to go to the cinematography and the effects. I've already said that I like the location of this movie. This old hospital looks and feels real, which adds character. Being that it is without power for the night makes it even scarier. I think the cinematography works well here, especially with framing to make us question if something supernatural is happening to Val or not. There aren't a lot in the way of effects here, but also doesn't need them. And I th do think what we get here lo does look good. Now, I don't really have any extra trivia here to share, so then in conclusion, I think this movie does some interesting things. We have a setting that I like, and the real history of the events kind of adds to the ambiance. I think that Williams' performance as Val was good and the rest of the cast works in support to, you know, pushing her to where she ends up. The concept and premise are solid, but I do have to admit there are some things that we've seen many times here before, so this isn't doing necessarily anything all that new except from the setting. I thought it was shot well and the effects work. Aside from that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed without necessarily standing out too much for me. I would say this is an above average movie. It is worth a viewing in my opinion, especially if what I've said ticks boxes for you. So my rating here for the power is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Now I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really think this movie necessarily warrants it. So what I am going to do is get you over to my trailer of my second featured review. When does our connection for trailer come in? Come in? It be gone quarter of an hour ago. Oh, last man's the next. There bent no next. There's no more trains through here tonight. I be just going to lock up. Oh, uh, but... Oh, Walter, when is the railroad train coming? <laughs> in about nine hours, ma'am. What? I'm afraid our train was so late that the connection went without it. And do you know why it was so late? Our comic friend with his comic hat. Oh! Hey, you! What's his confounded name? Mr. Gander. 
Gander, come here. Most intelligent basket, that, you know, it seems to know me. Whenever I go near it, it creaks. As you got us into this mess, perhaps you can think of some way of getting us out of it. Out of what? Owing to your idiocy with Mr. Connection. Yes, and what's more, there's no train for nine hours. Nine hours? That'll be tomorrow, won't it? I've got to rehearse at Newquay at half past ten. You should have thought of that before you stopped the train. Oh, I know. We'll charter a special. Special, indeed. And who's going to pay for that? Well, they can take it out of the money I owe them. In for a fiver, in for a special. That's me. Excuse me, old man. You Have didn't you... know specials, you I could go up to form six for... Do you mean one. to tell me we can't get to Truro tonight? Why? Leastways, not my train. Something best thinking about, doesn't you? Right. I suppose that applies to Red Roof, too, eh? No more trains tonight, nowhere. Uh, but I'm expected at Red Roof. I promised Dr. Harrier. Well, of all the quaint places. Oh, hello. Where does that line the other side go to? It don't go nowhere. Oh, it don't go nowhere. He means it stays where it is. I haven't said anything wrong. Hello. Oh, lovely. This is real concert party weather. This'll send them in. Good gracious. He can't stand here and get soaked, eh? He could stand anywhere and get soaked. And for my second featured review on this episode is going to be The Ghost Train. This is directed by Walter Ford. It's from the famous play by Arnold Ridley. And then it also came from the scenario by J.O.C. Orton. And then Val Guest along with Marriott Edgar. I believe that's how it's pronounced. They wrote the dialogue together. This stars Arthur Askey, Richard Murdoch, and Kathleen Harrison. This also features... Peter Murray Hill, Carol Lynn, Moreland Graham, Betty Jardine, Stuart Lathram, Herbert Lomas, Raymond Huntley, Lyndon Travers, DJ Williams, Wallace Bosco, Wilfred Lawson, George Merritt, and Sidney Mockton. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being hijinks and chills ensue when a group of people become stranded at an isolated station and a legendary phantom train approaches. So this is another movie that I discovered when I was working my way through the list from 1941 on Letterboxd for horror films. This is one that I believe had went into public domain as I got the chance to see it on YouTube. I did see that this movie was listed first as a comedy, which from the movies that I have watched seemed to be pretty common for this era. So then before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes really quick. The director of Ford has 64 credits of them to her horror, with the first one being Condemned to Death. I haven't seen or heard of this movie before, but I have, you know, this one being the other movie here. Then this is adapted, as I said, from a play by Ridley. He has eight adaptations. Four of them are horror. The first was a lost version from of this, like, story here from 1933. I believe there's yet another version that was called Kistaturkinen Vanada from the same year. I didn't say that right. This is another version there from 1939, then, you know, being before this one. So I have read, though, somewhere that the first three of this are lost and that this is the only one that you can really kind of find. Then Orton wrote the scenario here and has written 17 films. This is the only horror film for him as a writer, and I do believe that I have seen Alfred Hitchcock's Bon Voyage, which they were the ones that penned that. Guest shared the duties for writing the dialogue. He has 53 credits as a writer of them for horror. 
This is the first, and it was followed by the Quatermass Experiment, which I have seen, and then Quatermass 2, which I haven't, and the last was Stop Me Before I Kill, which I have covered here last year. And he also did write Casino Royale from 1967, which I have seen. And the last person here for the dialogue would be Edgar. He has 10 credits. This is the only horror film and the only one that I've seen. Then moving to our stars, the first is ASCII, which he only has 15 acting credits. This is the only one that I have seen and the only one in horror. His co-star of Murdoch also has 15 acting credits. It appears they have worked together, which I didn't realize, and there was like, quite a few projects. Again, this is the only one that I have seen in the only horror movie. Then the last person is Harrison. She has 71 acting credits. Of them, two are in horror. The first was with Boris Karloff in The Ghoul from 1933. I have not seen that one at this time, but then her other one is this here. I don't believe I've actually ever seen her in anything else, but I did find it interesting that she was in Lethal Weapon. So then we start this movie off on a train. The movie introduces us to most of our key people here. The first is a couple of Edna, who is Jardine, and Herbert, who is Latham. Now they are going to be on their way to get married. And then we have Tommy Gander, who is ASCII. He's a comedian and a performer who's going on to his next gig. Then there's Teddy Deacon, who's portrayed by Murdoch. The two of these guys here are enamored when they see Jackie Winthrop, who's portrayed by Lynn. They vie for her attention, but run into problems in the form of her cousin, who is R.G. Winthrop, who is portrayed by Murray Hill. As it progresses, though, that's when we learn that how they are related. And then also on the train is a drunken doctor of Sterling, who is portrayed by Graham, and a proper older woman of Miss Bourne, portrayed by Harrison. Now, an issue arises when Tommy loses his hat and pulls the emergency brake on the train, you know, so he could get off the train to get it. Now, his personality causes issues here as he doesn't see a problem with what he's done. The ticket takers on the train want to press charges. There is a bigger problem than this, though. When they arrive at the station, they learn that they've missed the connecting train that they needed to go on to, as this train only runs here and then heads back. So it turns out that there isn't going to be another one until the following morning. Now, Tommy isn't everyone's favorite person due to them being late. The station master states that they cannot stay there, but the closest like town is four miles away. It doesn't help that it starts to storm. Despite what the master stated, the group is going to hold up for the night in this train station. He does warn them, though, that there's something that has happened here some years ago. There was another station master by the name of Ted Holmes, portrayed by Wallace Bosco. Now, when they were the station master, he had a heart attack trying to change the tracks. Now, there is a bridge in the area that was out and is still not fixed, even after, you know, all these decades. Now, the train went over it, killing all of those on board. Now, some nights, a train does come by the station. There is no record of it leaving from the station previous or arriving in the next. It is a ghost train, and this gets under the skin of Miss Bourne, and it makes everybody else kind of be on edge. As the night goes on, there are some zany antics by Tommy, and some strange things happen around the station. There is also others that oddly you know, show up at the station as it goes on as well. Is this ghost train real, or is this more of a logical explanation for what people in the area have seen? So that is where I'm going to leave my recap, as this doesn't have the deepest story. It does have a concept that most of us kind of grew up with in a local legend. Where I grew up, we had a train trestle that is supposed to be haunted. I feel that many of us have a similar story for something near us that we, you know, kind of grew up learning about. A ghost train is an interesting one. Now, my issue here is that the idea really only takes up about 15 minutes or so of this, like, 75-minute runtime or so. A lot of this movie is ASCII's comedy as Tommy with the characters interacting with each other, trying to figure out how they're going to get to wherever they have to before it is too late, you know, like getting to your wedding or, you know, having some sort of business obligations you need to attend to. 
What is interesting, though, about ASCII is that I feel like I recognize him, but I'm not sure how. I think this is the first movie or show that I've seen him in that I know movie-wise it is, but I don't know if I've seen him in, like, a television show or something. Much like other movies from this year, the comedy doesn't always work for me. I do think he's funny, and some of the other characters also add comedy as well, but it's mostly Tommy. It seemed like a vehicle for him, you know, adding in a dash of horror and tension from their predicament. I think this movie could still function without him, though. He is the reason they get stranded and helps with discovering the truth, but it could be rewritten without this character as well. I don't want you to think I hate this, as that's not the case. It just isn't my style. What I find interesting is that this almost feels like the basis of a Scooby-Doo cartoons that would follow in the eras, you know, after this. Now, going along with the explanation, it is something that I like. I'm not going to spoil this, but even though this is 80 years old, there is a, you know, ghost train, or at least a train goes by. When we see it, we're just seeing it in the lights and the sounds are zooming past, and there is a window that is broken, so we do kind of see something is moving past them. What ends up being the reveal, though, it fits for the era, but I also feel like it's shoehorned in without much of a reason. I did like how some people were involved, and I'll admit, I didn't see it coming. Then moving away from the story, I want to take this to the acting. Even though the comedy doesn't work for me, I do like Askey as our lead. He is energetic, and some of his wordplay did make me laugh. I like seeing him compete with Murdoch for Jackie. The character of Teddy seems like a jerk, but the reveal that worked there, you know, despite my issues with, you know, how it happens. Now, Harrison, Murray Hill, Lynn, Graham, Jardine, and Latham are all solid. What I like is that many of them don't, like, hear what their name is, or I might have just missed it, but I knew exactly who each character was. The rest of the cast does round this out for what was needed, and that is, you know, very well done, I think, by the actors, you know, taking on their roles. And the last thing I'll go over would be the cinematography, effects, and soundtrack. For the former, I think it's fine. They don't do anything fancy with it, but I'm not going to hold that against the movie either. This isn't one that does much with effects, and it doesn't necessarily need it. I like certain things that happen that seem supernatural, but could also have a logical explanation. When the train that they think could be a ghost goes by is good. That takes me to the sound design as well. I thought the music fit, but it doesn't stand out. I did like the musical number for Tommy that RG cut short. The copy I did watch was a bit hard to hear, which... I do think does affect my viewing, but I tried not to hold it against the movie too much in my final rating. And I have just a little bit of trivia that I want to do here before I close out, which is the writer Ridley came up with this idea for the story while standing on the platform of the Mangonauts Field train near Bristol. The station is surrounded by three sides by tracks, and there was an earth bank opposite which reflected the sounds of trains coming along the tracks on the other side of the station, making it sound like a train was coming that would never arrive, which is kind of interesting there. The bridge on the evening of this was the Diamond Jubilee 44 years earlier. This refers, I guess, to Queen Victoria's celebration of 60 years of monarch on 1897. That would make the dates of this be in 1941, which does add up there. Winthrop comments on Gander reminding him of something out of East Lynn. I guess this was a novel written by Ellen Wood and published in 1861, which was a bestseller. And it was made into a successful play, staged many times, and there's been 15 film versions and one television series. I guess the opening comedic train sequence was the inspiration for A Hard Day's Night from 1964. There's also some references to some other stuff. Uh, there's been three film versions made, but this is the only one to exist in the archives, which is what I was saying earlier. This is the only Arthur Askey film to be broadcast on British TV. And I guess that Askey and Murdoch were a comedy team, which I didn't realize, but this is the last one that they featured together. 
and it looks like that Murdoch was drafted into the Royal Air Force, which is contributing to why that was the case. So in conclusion here, this is a decent little comedic film with some horror elements. If this came out today, I don't think it would get that classification for the latter. I thought the acting amongst our core characters was good. The concept of the haunted train and how they get stranded is solid enough for me, especially with a local legend that I grew up with. The movie would work better for me, though, without the comedy, but that's just, you know, my preference. The explanation feels a little bit shoehorned in for the era, and the other parts were fine as well. I would say that this is over average. It's just missing some elements for me to go higher, so my rating for the ghost train is going to be a 6 out of 10. Don't really think I need to do any sort of a spoiler section because I just don't think that there's a deep enough story and really it would just be me kind of explaining as to, you know, what the actual ghost train was and everything like that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to a brief break before I close out the show. I want to welcome you back one last time and then just to close everything out here on episode number 89. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback that you'd like over there. And if you have anything that you would like to have read on the show, just go ahead and let me know. And then if you'd like to read any of the reviews on anything that I've done here on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, I will be posting all of the reviews from anything on here. And that'll be all of the horror and non-horror reviews alike. And that's David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On Instagram for the Journey with a Cinephile, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word for there. And then just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of the links for those in the show notes. And then the other thing I would ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. If you could go ahead and also rate and review just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like and then get out to more listeners that way, that would be greatly appreciated. And then for episode number 90, it's going to be another Odyssey Through the Ones as I will have featured reviews of The Smiling Ghost. That is from 1941, and then I'm also going to do Caveat, which I believe is a newer movie on Shudder. I've heard some people watching it. Figure I'd give that one a go, as I heard it's kind of pretty wild. Not sure how well those are going to pair up as a double feature, but, you know, that's what it's going to be. Then I'm also going to continue to work through the Summer Challenge series for the movies that were selected for the podcast Under the Stairs as well. Really think that's all I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say then in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>